Hi, and welcome. I'm Danika Scott, Chief Marketing Officer for the Emerging Markets Coalition, and I'm introducing you to today's 420 Financial Forum webinar and podcast, COVID, Cash, Cannabis, and Contactless, presented in collaboration with the National Association of Cannabis Businesses. During COVID-19 shutdowns, cannabis businesses were deemed essential businesses, but were limited to curbside pickup and delivery only, forcing even greater reliance on cash. When this happened, we at EMC received numerous inquiries from CRBs asking for the best contactless payment options and how to tell if those options were real and long-term or would potentially be gone in three to six months, apparently an all-too-familiar scenario. Our panel of experts today draw from both fintech, banking and payments, and cannabis retail. None of our experts offer payment services, but have a deep understanding of what's out there now and what's important in considering all the options. Thanks for joining us today for COVID Cash Cannabis and Contactless. If you have questions or comments, please email us at communications at emcoalition.org. And now I'm gonna introduce and turn you over to Kirsten Trusco, EMC's CEO and co-founder. Thanks so much, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to the webinar that is being co-hosted by Emerging Markets Coalition and National Association of Cannabis Businesses. And this is to address with some of the talk experts in the space, uh, a critical topic, especially in the age of COVID-19. Our webinar is COVID Cash Cannabis and Contactless. This was driven by members from NACB and EMC calling in to say, look, um, with COVID-19, Cannabis businesses are generally deemed essential, but we are um, only allowed to do curbside and delivery. Now we need to be contactless. What are the options? Um, there's been a lot of, of talk out there, a lot of different, different solutions out there. So the goal here is to bring together the top experts to help determine what is real, what is sustainable, what'll be around for the long term. So very excited to welcome our panel um, we have a combination of those that have deep expertise in banking and payments and legislative and regulatory and cannabis related businesses. And we're all out there listening and, and, and searching for the top solutions. None of the folks on the phone today actually offer payment services. All the experts here have reached out to the marketplace to evaluate for themselves what they think are the top solutions. And you're gonna hear today, what are some of those criteria what are the challenges? What are the opportunities? What are the top tips? Um, so with that, I'm delighted to introduce our panel. We have um, Tony with Shield Compliance. He has a deep, deep banker's background. He serves as COO and president of Shield. And his team got a lot of calls from those saying, hey, who should I be going to for payments? And so they had a chance to, to do a deep dive on a number of um, payment offers, and he's gonna share a little bit of what he found there and how to spot uh, the sustainable payments. Joanne Needleman is with Clark Hill. She is a top attorney in the cannabis and banking space. She's gonna speak a bit to legal challenges in offering a full menu of payment options and how to do it right, what to look for. Tom Nolasco is with NACB, especially in government relations and is going to help give us a view on the payments topic and what it will really take to enable the full payments menu. And we are going to round out at the end with Michael Flores, who is the CEO of Bretton Woods, uh, a top research house in financial services. And he's going to talk about a fresh 
uh, primary research study that will really help us to, um, to move things forward, especially on the payments and banking piece, uh, especially impactful for legislation, regulation, media, and, and all of that. So uh, with those brief intros, if you'd like to be even more impressed, please go on to LinkedIn, look at all of our speakers online. Um, it, it, we're delighted to have everyone here. So our format, we're gonna have a few questions that each panelist will reply. Others can weigh in if they would like. Um, and then at the end, everyone's going to give a, a, a summary sense there. Tony, as the COO of Shield, you shared that you had many coming to you asking what payment platforms you would recommend, um, particularly those that are going to last longer than three months, six months, nine months, really right. long-term solutions. And with your depth in banking and payments, I'm hoping maybe you can share with us some of the criteria that you use so that our, those who are watching can do the same, to select their own. Yeah, Kirsten, thank you for having me today and happy to share that uh, with everyone. Uh, we really looked at it in a, from a few different lenses. So one was uh, many of the people asking us for advice on payments were financial institutions that wanted to provide Canvas banking. And so as they looked at it, they wanted to make sure they were recommending good solutions that fit in their Canvas banking program. And so with that, we then looked at a uh, revenue stream for the bank, but also what's the customer experience um, that for the person making payments, what's the operational experience, and then the compliance overlay for all of that. So on the customer side, we really looked for traditional payment metrics. So what is it like for the customer to activate to use that product? And then what is the utilization? Because obviously you can have the most compliant or the least costly payment solution, but if the customer doesn't want to use it, who cares, right? right. And so what we really looked at there was how do we make sure that the customer is comfortable with the enrollment process? And then also, um, how easy is it for them to make those purchases? You know, especially uh, whether it's a medical state or a recreational adult use state, those customers are often repeat customers. So what does that look like for the customer and what incentive do they have to, to uh, use that payment mechanism? We also then look from a business standpoint, and this became especially important with the COVID pieces, what are the different ways the customer can interact with the payments platform? So, and how does that fit into business operations? So does that support online ordering in those states where delivery are an option? Does it support um, delivery um, payment uh, options? And then what's the retail in-store experience? And how closely does that experience align with um, the other um, payment methods that customers are familiar with? And then, uh, and then uh, we looked at also settlement window. What does that settlement look like? So for our business customer, the longer their funds are held away with the payments company, that increased risks and costs for the MRB. So we really wanted to understand what, what uh, could the customer expect in terms of receiving settlement for those payments that have been made. And then we also looked at um, the compliance. So we looked at transparency. So what we saw was, Kirsten, you mentioned it off the top, uh, what is the sustainability? How long have they been in business? What are their referenceable clients that they have? Obviously, that's a huge red flag when you couldn't get any of those referenceable clients. What volume of payments are they operating? What networks are they using? And then we really want to make sure there was transparency with the financial institutions that were participating in these payments. And so obviously, as you get more independent sales organizations involved, more ISOs involved in the process, are they trying to obscure something? and trying to stretch out that window of not getting caught for doing something they're not supposed to be doing. And so we really looked at what was the, what was the network they were clearing on and what kind of compliance did that drive? Who are the parties that are involved? And what's the 
transparency of the services to those parties. And so really looking at that, um, you know, there's some really great solutions that utilize ACH in total, but there's definitely some barriers to entry to get customers to sign up for those solutions to provide their bank account information to their MRB or to this mysterious payment mechanism in order to tie their checking account to this MRB payment vehicle. Um, we also saw there was there were definitely folks that were um, providing a lot of gray area and there was questions about whether they were even settling funds within the US and that creates a lot of difficulty for um, from a compliance standpoint and so we we avoided those and then we looked at those that rode on the pin based debit networks and saw that there was some advantages there and the sustainability of those products seemed to last longer and what we also really avoided was those that tried to use those merchant category codes like gift cards or something else where you're trying to obscure what you're actually doing you um, oftentimes we saw those products would be stood up and then shut down you know just a few months later so that's kind of a high level of what we looked at as we were out shopping the payments market on behalf of our financial institutions. Wow, I, I can't even type fast enough <laughs> to pick up, every, pick up everything you had. Would you be open, or maybe you have this, and I apologize if I don't have it in front of me, um, having a list, maybe we could post it, maybe it's already on your website, maybe we could post it to EMCs, but just some of these criteria that you used, or is there a white paper folks could read with that? Because this is brilliant. Sure. Sure, I'll, um, you know, if we want to insert a slide, I can put those on a, on a slide or two, and then um, uh, Danica can work those slides into the presentation or post them to the website yeah. as a PDF or something. Okay, that would be wonderful, because those are the kinds of things that, as payments people, I knew exactly what you were saying, but folks that might not be as familiar with payments might want to look up some of the words and, and exactly what, what we're talking about, but that was powerful stuff. How many, not that you have to give the names, but how many did you settle on that you thought were really good, sustainable, and you would be comfortable referring? Like two. <laughs> wow. No, there were, there, was, there was two or three. Um, there were others that um, they just, we, we just don't believe that they're sustainable or they couldn't provide us with referenceable clients. The other thing that we saw very, there was a common theme that we found, which was people were conflating sort of uh, hemp-based CBD payment options and licensed marijuana, uh, you know, state-based licensed marijuana programs. And the payments markets there are diverging relatively quickly. Um, and the compliance is, is quite a bit different. And so people will tell you that they support state-based licensed marijuana uh, retailers come to find out what they, they only are supporting hemp-based CBD. And so they're marketing one thing and they're looking for settlement agents or clearing agents on the back end, but it's smoke and mirrors. And that was really disappointing. But you had to ask about 10 times, do you have payments? Do, are you clearing for state-based, state-licensed marijuana businesses today in which states and uh, they would finally have to say no. Wow. You know, hopefully we're going to be laughing about this and not, <laughs> not too long, yeah. <laughs> but for now, um, thank you for that. Tom, what are your members asking about payments since, since you have the cannabis-related businesses as your members 
and given your time on Capitol Hill, maybe you can share with us what you think are the three biggest challenges to taking the normal payments we go and use at coffee shops and other, other retailers. Yeah, first the, the feedback or what I'm hearing from our members uh, and, and from my clients. I mean, the, the obvious ones uh, that, that people hear about, you know, just dealing with cash that they're having to do uh, is a security concern and all the problems attendant with that. I mean, I, I still use the, the story of when I got a client that first had banking services, they were able to make their first banking deposit and they called to congratulate um, everyone. And I said, well, how did you make that deposit? And they said, well, do you remember so-and-so? Or I said, yeah, we just put her with a duffel bag of $250,000 and drove across town. So that's an obvious security concern. The NACB did uh, develop some uh, cash management security protocols surrounding that. Um, the other thing we hear is a lot of the clients and the members are tired of wasting their time training the employees uh, on a new payment processing plan and, and the customers only to lose that service within four, typically four to six months. And then the other common uh, concern we hear is that th there's a lack of technical support from the processor, you know, on troubleshooting or any number of issues. Um, I, I just also want to mention, I mean, we're fortunate enough because there's a payment processing company that did a survey kind of pre and post pandemic, which will help uh, frame what we're talking about in the context. Uh, the first thing that they found was 71% of uh, all the purchases in the, for, for the CRBs was used for cash, which isn't a big surprise given where we're at as far as financial services in the industry. Uh, the surprising thing, or the most surpri more surprising thing to me, and this was when they pre-pandemic, so February 2020, was that 55% still uh, preferred using cash. And why is that? It's because 82% of their purchases were driven by the convenience fees. In other words, they didn't want to pay that additional fee in addition to paying for the product. Now fast forward to May 2020, and less than 45% are preferring that cash alternative. And why is that? It's because of the health concerns and because of money and, you know, in many ways money is or can be dirty and they want that contactless way to pay. So it couldn't be a more timely uh, discussion and more in demand to have that way of contactless cashless payment uh, than we have here today. What do you think, again, going to your time on the Hill, um, what do you think we could, we as an industry taking the, the cannabis related businesses and the financial services industry, what do you think we could be doing collectively to help drive uh, more clarity and a broader acceptance and ability um, to have full payment options? Yeah, the first thing is, um, and it's just a first step, but uh, for those that were following the SAFE Act, and that's kind of near and dear to my heart because I did help with uh, Congressman Perlmutter's group on the passage. Uh, there was a lot of momentum. Uh, it passed the House, obviously, last fall. Uh, there was a Senate Banking uh, Committee hearing by, by Crapo also that I attended. Uh, and then there were some hiccups on, along the way where you had Crapo hinting at the 2% cap for THC. Uh, one of the other panels I did just before the pandemic hit uh, I did speak with Congressman Perlmutter. He was still very optimistic on its passage, and obviously they tried to include it uh, in the second round for stimulus under the HERO, um, that HERO package, stimulus package. Uh, so that is kind of a first step. 
that doesn't remove it from schedule one, which is ultimately what we want in order for some of these services that Tony spoke about um, to take place. What we're pushing um, on our lobbying efforts, which is finding a lot of resonance, it's not just promoting the tax revenue that can be generated. And again, that's an attractive option today, given where the kind of the state governments and the federal governments are with their budgets. Uh, not just the tax revenue that can be generated, uh, but also, again, pushing the safety concerns um, with cash that are happening today, and also uh, the employment that can be incre increased and a job creation that takes place uh, with allowing these businesses to act like normal businesses. You know, it's, it's interesting talking about the, the safety piece, because um, that's in working with law enforcement and, and legislators and regulators and talking about follow the money, if we can enable or require full electronic payments, what's been shared, opinions shared have included, if, if you can force it to be all electronic, then you can see every penny as it moves hand to hand. So then you can tax it, you can move it electronically, but also the potential to keep the, the bad players out. As, as the saying goes, uh, you know, drug dealers don't take Visa MasterCard, so. Right, and, and which, which is, uh, you know, how, why the SAFE Act as just a nomenclature fits in nicely. But, but again, I can't put too fine a point on this, and I'm sure uh, Joanne will speak about this uh, in more detail, but the SAFE Act is just a start. Um, and it doesn't remove it from Schedule 1 yet. What you're looking at, uh, you're still facing a lot of risks. Banks are risk averse from the BSA, BSA and AML violations. Um, so that really needs to be taken care of in addition to that. Okay, well, that's yeah. fair. Can I ask Tom a question? Sure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, and, and Tony, thank you for all your uh, research too. I mean, it's just, it's incredible stuff. So Tom, when you are on the Hill, I, I agree, we need to address Schedule 1. Has there been any discussion with, um, maybe not Hill, Hill meetings, but maybe with regulators about amending and improving and revising uh, bank regulation, you know, examination manuals, because I think that's the biggest problem too. I mean, there's there's no real playbook uh, for a financial institution that does accept cannabis payments, and the biggest fear that many banks have is what that examination is going to look like, and more importantly, how much more it's going to cost me to get through that examination. So, have there been discussions about that? Yeah, so a couple things on that, Joanne. First, um, the SAFE Act has been amended throughout the years, but one of, one of the provisions in there now is that it's mandatory to provide, FinCEN must provide written gui guidelines to the bank. But at that hearing um, that Senator Crapo had, a lot of the people that testified said, listen, we have no, we want to service this industry, but it's exactly what you said. We have no guidelines the regulators have no guidelines going forward, and that's what we really need. That's why this act is just a kickoff. Uh, but really, the Fed needs to give us guidance going forward, the regulators' guidance and the bank's guidance, um, so that we have some clarity. Because right now, you know, the FinCEN guidelines are what they are, and they provide they provide a start from what most most banks are saying. But we need to continue down that road. The reality is, I mean, on the Hill right now, with what's being passed really what's not being done, um, especially in the election year, is that needs to happen first and those guidelines will follow. But yeah, that's a constant theme is, please, someone give us some guidance and show us what we need to do. Thanks. 
You know, Joanne, to add to that, I think we have seen some positive movements from the uh, state banking regulators, the, the sort of industry group for state banking regulators, and they have issued some guidance uh, about what those examinations uh, should contain and how they should be conducted. Um, I think for the banks that we work with, the fear continues to be the amount of regulator discretion. And even those state chartered banks still have the FDIC or the FRB or somebody else at a federal level participating or independently examining them. So that examiner discretion um, creates a lot of fear and uncertainty for bankers. And as Tom said, and I, I can say this, that being a former banker, we don't like that. Um, <laughs> that's, we want certainty. Right. Uh, and so, uh, but what we are seeing in those examinations is more consistency from examination to examination and more training within the agencies today about what, how those examinations should be conducted. So it's creating a little more certainty for bankers, but obviously, as Tom said, Safe Banking Act uh, would uh, specifically direct FinCEN to um, issue uh, examination procedures. So Tony, what or, or are the I should say the FFIUC to right. issue um, examination procedures. Um, you know, at the top of the call, we talked about um, teeing up the question, what could we as industry do to help drive this together collectively? And a, a question for, for all of you, back in, in our prepaid days, um, when it was such a new industry, the regulators and examiners said, hey, it, this is so new, could you, could you do training? So we did two days for CFPB, we did a day for FDIC, and, and really just said, we had industry experts like yourselves, uh, we'd have to do it virtual now, but, but did it in person, had a whole mapping out of everything. We said, look guys, ask us any question you want. We're not hiding anything. This is all about transparency and process. And what would you like to know? No, and it was um, it, it was kind of exciting. As exciting as examinations get, right? But um, one of our our bank members said, "You know that 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 thing you had us help put together the the like ten steps? It was in my examiner's check sheet when they came to the bank. So it was like, well, that's kind of cool. So do you think there might be an opportunity here to do something similar at the federal and maybe the state level? Well, I think the state banking regulators are more open to it. Sorry, Joanne. No, 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 go ahead, you go. I was, I was gonna say, I think the state banking regulators are more open to it. You know, if you think about those state banking regulators, they, you know, sit across the hall from the cannabis regulators or their governor is counting on the revenue uh, associated with this industry. And so there's, there's political pressure to enable banking within these states. And so state banking regulators, I think have been the most, um, willing to participate. The federal regulators are, it's more challenging. I would agree with that. I also think at the federal level, there, there's, there's a process, especially when there's legislation that's pending called technical assistance and um, where sponsors of bills or, or folks on the Hill can ask, um, can coordinate with regulators to kind of give Kristen, uh, Kirsten, as you were talking about, you know, this overview and, and, and uh, suggestions and recommendations. And I think it's an excellent idea because we are in uncharted territory. Uh, you know, how open is the FDIC or FRB or even the OCC uh, at this point willing to have that discussion? But I think, you know, after we do get past this election, uh, depending on where we are, 
with cannabis legislation, that, that really should be uh, an advocacy point uh, to start going in. And I would, you know, strongly recommend, as you said, Kristen, you know, we need to develop our own checklist from the experience that you have from your members um, and put it together. I mean, one thing that we all know, having dealt with regulators, um, the more you can do for them, probably the better. So um, less work makes happy regulators, right? <laughs> Don't put a statement when it's time for an examination. I was, I've always been told. So... <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting, and so I think we take that as a to-do, Tom, across our two organizations. Um, also, media. Uh, so often, media is open. We, in past lives, held these media breakfasts on the Hill or in New York or what have you, and invited media in, had a few um, opening slides of here's the industry, who, here's who's participating, and just let them ask questions. And once they sense nobody's hiding anything, we're just trying to get the cash off the streets, and electronify it for all the reasons we talked about earlier, uh, people were really engaged. It um, really is about being proactive and out there and, and being transparent, which was well received in another high-risk industry. So hopefully that would be helpful here. Yeah, and, and just following up on, on what Tony said, I mean, the, the overall theme in this industry is everything is being state-led, right? So you've got the, in California, you've got the Department of Business Oversight that if they've already issued essentially what is kind of a safe harbor um, for some state chartered banks and credit unions for regulatory action for doing business with, with CRB. So like most things in this industry, it's all being state-led. It's 10th Amendment stuff, kind of mimicking what, what the Warren Act is saying. And yeah, we, we as an organization get a lot more traction with individual states than we're getting on Capitol Hill right now. That makes sense. Um, Joanne, what do you tell cannabis customers is the biggest downside if they do sign up for one of these non-transparent payment platforms that we talked about before that, that try to obfuscate the fact that this is a transaction of a legal cannabis product? Yeah. I wish I had Tony's checklist before I had Tony. You know, for all the reasons that, that, that Tony said, uh, you know, Let's remember this, even, even the best of the best that Tony is looking at, we still, there is still risk in a payment system uh, because we're still in Schedule 1. Uh, because even if it's a state chartered bank, um, they're affiliated with FDIC and FRB. And the minute that money is transferred, you know, I always say, the minute you push the button and hit the Fed wire, you, you've committed uh, and you have the risk of anti-money uh, laundering. Or, or Bank Secrecy Act issues. So it's a risky business. And so being with, with players who are transparent and more importantly, have good relationships with banks. There are a couple payment process companies out there who have developed kind of their own networks and have affiliations with certain banks. And those are the ones that I would say you need to be talking to first because they understand the reporting requirements of what banks have to do. They understand the transparency. Anybody that tells you that, well, my product is great because I can bypass what is we call know your customer, which are elements of anti-money laundering and bank secrecy, uh, I would run because they can't. Uh, so the more the companies that provide the most transparency and have you know, and are building on long-term relationships with financial institutions, banks, or credit unions, those, that is where I would start. But the one thing I think that um, if you're looking into a payment processing system, 
still understand that your relationship, even with that system and with the bank that you're using, is expensive. I mean, that's that's part of the problem because the the risk, even that we have about three or four hundred banks right now who are actively supporting the cannabis industry. It costs them a lot of money to do it because they need the manpower. They have to still do SAR reports. They have to be careful during their examination and it's costly. And ultimately that cost is gonna be passed on to you, which is why uh, I appreciate Tom's efforts in trying to develop legislation because it really shouldn't have to be that way. Banks are there to serve communities, not put communities uh, into, into more debt and having to do basic financial services. So um, th those are just some of the few things that I, I try to tell clients. If it's too good to be true, run away. Uh, look, look at those very well, in-depth, robust companies that, that really take uh, the idea of money payments and transferring in through the federal system very, very seriously. Absolutely. Well, you've probably had people at conferences do the same thing. They'll come up and say, hey, I saw this great new payment platform and I signed up. Isn't it exciting? They'll explain it. And it's all you can do to, to not bite your lip. And, that, and so you explain to them why what they're explaining is not compliant, borderline illegal, whatever. And they say, well, what's the worst that can happen? Well, you could be shut down and blacklisted. <laughs> you know, a lot, there's a lot of things that could happen. You're also uh, very wary of, I have talked with, I, I, companies call me all the time and say, you know, we've got the, the greatest thing. And, and, and when you go to the state legislature and tell them how wonderful we are, <laughs> state legislatures will not endorse any product they cannot so anybody that tells you oh the governor thinks it's great again run uh look state legislatures and state regulators would love to have a robust payment system within their state where cannabis is legal absolutely but they are not gonna they're not going to endorse one particular product over the other they may endorse a process uh, maybe somebody's having a process that's doing better than others that's a different story, but they are not going to sponsor uh, any product. And if any um, vendor tells you otherwise, again, run, <laughs> run quickly. Well, Joanne, I think you made a really good point uh, early on in, in that discussion that it really comes down to access to banking, right? Whether you're a payments company or you're the cannabis related business, it's about access to affordable banking. And so, you know, as Tom said, safe, safe banking will be the first step in helping with that and expanding access to banking. The one thing that we see, though, is that there probably will continue to be higher costs for this business, not dissimilar to maybe like money service businesses. Because if you look at the BSA AML risks associated with this industry, some of those will continue even with safe banking. So mm -hmm. you've got a product that could be easily diverted into the illegal market. You also have, um, you do have this legacy funds issue that you're still having to deal with. So unless there's some sort of amnesty that comes for that. And, and then I, I think there's still going to be interest in making sure criminal uh, elements don't attach themselves to these businesses. And so for all of those reasons, enhanced due diligence will still be required, uh, hopefully not at the same level that's required today and there'll be more competition. And so that will help drive down costs. I was just going to say, eventually if more people right now, there's a real barrier to entry as more and more uh, financial institutions are able to serve communities where cannabis is legal, 
you'll start to see that price come down. But you're right, it's going to be an expensive banking service, They're, more so than your traditional operating account for a business, at, you know, for a non-cannabis business. I agree. But I think over time, uh, and, and once, you know, and hopefully EMC can help build the robust best practices and standards of what, it, what a financial services platform will look like for the cannabis industry, uh, I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Yeah. Excellent. Well, and that's one of the things, it's, if you look at any highly regulated market, so Joanne, to the point you were just making, um, the co-founders for EMC in a past life did that for another high-risk business, and now that's just like the product everybody uses, nobody even realizes or thinks about it. Um, look at how banking is done for, um, for alcohol, for tobacco, for gaming. There's all kinds of things that are legal in the U.S. that are still highly regulated, and they have banking and payments. They're just more controlled than buying coffee or milk. So it is doable. We have models for it. Um, so guys, unless there's other topics, one of the things we wanted to do is we wrap up this piece of it and then go on to the, the primary research piece that Michael's gonna tell us about. Um, if, if you could do this in one sentence, um, what's the top thing that could be done to drive full acceptance of cannabis payments in the US and um, ACH credit debit, the whole, the whole menu that we have when we buy other products? I know, Tom, do you have a thought since you're the one spending the most time on the Hill? Sure. I, I think what t Tony, t I think we all touched on it, actually. Um, I mean, with, when Tony mentioned that uh, there was kind of a divergence between CBD and hemp and, and those in, in the CRB, those CRB businesses. Uh, and then he also mentioned, listen, this all begins with, with legalization. Uh, that's what we're focused on ultimately, because you can see... Uh, how those uh, how those services processing banking services are so much are are so much easier now and will be in the future once that once that piece is put into place and getting there again we're, we're looking at you know step by step safe act and then really um, you know this has kind of evolved as we've been on here but letting the states lead the way and show that by some of the examples one of the things Joanne said. I thought was interesting where she said that there's probably already three or 400 banks um, that are already in this space. I thought there were probably less than that. When I looked up uh, and did some homework last night on FinCEN, this is just as of September, 2019, but they reported over 560 banks and 160 credit unions servicing CRBs already. So we'd be remiss to saying that there aren't alternatives for CRBs today. There certainly are. The problem is, as we all know, it's very limited and it's very expensive. Uh, but the piece from there that's interesting is that from the SARS filings under the, uh, the marijuana limited uh, category, so that's where the bank is really in compliance, 76,203 of those were in compliance and a far, far less were under um, the MJ priority where there's a red flag. So you can show the legislators and people on the Hill uh, that, listen, this has been going on a while in the States and most of the, these people understand it and they have a lot of high costs and in spite of all that they're still complying probably more than a lot of other industries and i think that's just one more selling point where we can help harmonize everything to legalization in the future i think that's a wonderful point the um it's interesting the discussion on how many banks are out there because sometimes we'll be on the hill and the member of congress said well there's 500 banks what are you complaining about that should be plenty 
And so we say, well, that's 516 or whatever it was that, that filed SARS. They might have filed the SARS because it red flagged in their system because they aren't servicing uh, the cannabis industry. So we've heard anywhere from 150, you know, the 500 would be the, the high end, but it's still a small percentage for the quantity of businesses. And so many of the banks we've talked to that have entered or are considering got into it from the commercial side because one of their long time commercial banking clients that owns hotels or whatever now accidentally um, is a landlord or something related to cannabis related. And they, then they dig in and say, wait a minute, this is a safety issue in our community. We've got to get this cash off the street. So that was the number one reason they were, they were entering. So cool. Yeah. We estimate there's about a hundred banks that have what we would consider to be active portfolios where they're um, they have a true MRB banking program. We'll take uh new clients in, um, you know, tier one, they're licensed plant touching businesses. Okay. Um, I think Kirsten, to your point, many of those SAR filings are related to um, those uh, ancillary businesses, uh, landlords, um, other operating companies that may touch these uh, licensed entities. And so it, it inflates the access to banking number a little bit, that FinCEN filing number, because so many of those are not active uh, banks that are actively serving the market. Absolutely. So, Tony, since you've got the uh, calm for the moment, what, what's <laughs> your one sentence on what you think it would take to, to really normalize payments and open it up to credit debit, all, all the things you'd like? I think the, the most immediate change that can be made is the passage of safe banking. I think that begins to open the door and um, bring more players to the table and that will increase access to payments. And so we believe safe banking is the, the next logical step. Got it. Joanne? I think it's um, remove uh, marijuana from schedule one, which can easily be done through the attorney general's office. I mean, that's a rule. Um, so, I mean, I think all the things that Tony and um, Tom have talked about are, you know, it, is, it isn't going to be one thing. It's going to be collective action of a lot of things. But the minute there's federal acceptance is going to make life easier. It'll just trickle down. Uh, you know, kudos to the states for doing all that they're doing. They have to. I mean, they're just, it, it, they can't ignore it. But there's, they're always going to run into a brick wall until there's federal acceptance of, of cannabis and marijuana. So when that happens, I think that will be the uh, igniter to, to move this industry where it should be. Um, my opinion. <laughs> I love that igniter. Um, so guys, we're going to wrap up this piece and then we're going to um, invite Michael Flores from Brenton Woods. But for anybody who's watching this and wants to contact any of our experts, we're all on LinkedIn. We all have websites. If you have trouble reaching anybody, just email communications at emcoalition.org and we'll connect. But this was um, big brains, good, good stuff guys. Thank you so much for, for joining. So thank you to our panel for a, a very lively informed uh, discussion on, on contactless payments. Before we go, we, we do want to introduce a critical way to influence legislators, regulators, law enforcement, and media, and that is via primary research to capture the current state, the future state, and the gaps. In past lives working with um, high risk, highly regulated markets, uh, there's often a lack 
of, of true research out there. So in the absence, people make up all kinds of stuff. So by having uh, respected primary research, that is very helpful in accomplishing some of the things we were talking about earlier. Um, so I'd like to invite and introduce Michael Flores, who is the CEO of Bretton Woods. Um, Bretton Woods as a research house has had, has had some incredible impact on Capitol Hill with Michael taking his primary research and testifying in Congress. Uh, very fact-based, very transparent. And um, he and I've worked together for years and we've been able to get through legislation bipartisan, bicameral, uh, in markets that people said it never would happen. So Michael, I'm gonna hand it over to you. Can you describe to us this, this study that you're looking at and, and everyone Emerging Markets Coalition is fully in support of this and very excited for him to do it. Michael? Thank you, Kirsten, I appreciate that. And everybody on the webinar today, excellent points were made. And many of those, if not most of those, will be issues that we wanna to touch on in the primary research. If I can though, let me frame this. I am doing uh, some research right now for an article on the, on the impact of COVID uh, on banking and what the future portends. And some of the data I've received thus far is very surprising. My hypothesis originally was banks or average balances are going to go down because people are out of work, they're spending their money, and overdrafts are going, to, going up. It's just quite the opposite. People are hoarding cash. Average balances are increased significantly. Obviously, initially due to PPP and other uh, support measures that, that Congress has passed. So you've got hundreds of billions of dollars flooding the banking system right now. What's happening though is that fee income is going down for these banks and primarily in overdraft income. And I think you're going to see that not fully recover because you're going to have a lot of people that don't go back to work. Uh, from a small business standpoint, we're looking at maybe 25 plus percent of uh, uh, storefront retailers, restaurants and bars not reopening. Uh, they just didn't have the cash and capital to support these three months that uh, they've been closed. Uh, so I think banks are going to be looking for more opportunities. You're looking at a 30 plus billion dollar industry right now with, with uh, CRB. And as was mentioned during the webinar, you have 100 plus active banks uh, and several hundred others that, that have uh, some relationship with, with uh, CRB businesses or, or within the supply chain of those businesses. That said, banks, I think, are going to have real greater impetus to look at banking CRBs. And as, as people had mentioned, once it's descheduled, uh, once it's legal from a federal standpoint, it will open up the floodgates. But banks need to know what the key issues are. What are the best practices going forward? And if I may, let me share with you uh, a, a flow chart of what we're thinking about uh, for our study. We're basically going to take a look at as is, where are we? There are the constituencies we want to query there are the CRBs themselves. Uh, we want to look at the financial services providers, uh, banks, credit unions, and alternative providers as well. 
And what are the consumer issues? You know, it was mentioned during the webinar, you had pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, uh, more people willing to use cash. Post-pandemic, uh, fewer people willing to use cash because of, the, of the, the health reasons. And I think you're going to see a lot of changes that are, will become permanent in terms of how people conduct business. They're gonna want more contactless payments. They're going to want to do more on a virtual basis, an online basis, rather than dealing with physical facilities. So with that, we wanna take a look at what's the existing research. When I say existing, it's difficult. You wanna look at what is credible existing research. Uh, who are the people behind it? What, what are their CVs, their bona fides? And document and, and source that information. And the primary research we want to do, and I'll share with you in a moment a preliminary questionnaire, is to take a look at both from the CRB's perspective as well as the financial service provider's perspective, the issues related to offering or why they don't offer services to the business right now. Then let's look at listing all those issues. Uh, where appropriate, we'll, we'll conduct follow-up interviews with the participants. Uh, talk about, as was talked about in the webinar, state versus federal issues. And as Kirsten had mentioned before, and very importantly, what's the gap of where are we right now? Where do we want to be in, in the future? And how do we get there? And of all the issues that are out there, let's conduct a Pareto assessment. Let's look at the 20% of the issues if addressed, we'll provide 80% of the solutions that, that everybody's looking for. And then we'll take all that and produce a white paper. Uh, as Kirsten has mentioned, we've taken these white papers and taken them in front of Congress, uh, both Senate subcommittees and House subcommittees, as well as state. We, uh, we did one on uh, payroll cards uh, in California that was threatening to uh, inhibit the use there, and it was very effective in stopping that legislation. Uh, so we try to be as bulletproof as we can on these analysis. We source all the data, and uh, because we do that, the legislators do take uh, note uh, and, and typically will act positively upon this research. The next step we want to take a look at, what is that survey? And again, we're not going to list you. We'll, we'll make this available online for you later. But it's, it's typical, the, the same issue, but what's the industry's response and what's the financial services response? As was mentioned, and I'm going to take this out of the shared screen right now, if I can. Here we go. Where do we want to go uh, with, with this? So we, we want to take people in, in the states that uh, where it is legal, Washington, Colorado, Oregon, California, et cetera, and query organizations in those states. I think it would also be helpful to look at players, regional players, if we could, in states where it's not legal and getting their perspective and understand what needs to happen, what would make them comfortable in order to offer these services. Because eventually, it will be accepted nationally. So given that, uh, 
I think this is a great opportunity uh, for input to make sure we have the issues that people need to have addressed, that we, we create the, the questions appropriately. And what we really want is to gain uh, participants, both from the, the business, the industry perspective, as well as the financial services providers. And we won't make this onerous. It's, it's 10 to 12 uh, questions, uh, and it shouldn't take more than a, a couple hours uh, to answer because some of them are answering op are open-ended questions. And, and with that, I think we can return a, a white paper and be ready to go to Congress uh, within six to eight weeks. That is fabulous. So, Michael, from the day you get the, the surveys launched, so how quickly do you want people to reply? And, and how do they raise their hand to say that, that their business will participate? Well, I think what we'll, we'll do is create a, uh, on the EMC website, the ability to pe people to respond to the request and, and we'll capture uh, the interest there. Uh, they can go to my website uh, that we'll post later and look at the work that we've done in the past and, and the methodology that, 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 that we utilize. Uh, but I, I think once we get the people expressing willingness to participate, we're probably going to need to give them a little more time than we would have pre-pandemic. There's a a lot of issues on the plate uh, for, for these people right now. Least of all, as I mentioned earlier, the loss of fee income, but more importantly, the potential losses in uh, business loans as well as commercial real estate. Uh, if, if you have uh, businesses that are finding out that remote work is doing just fine and some cases uh, people are more productive, then you're gonna have a lot of excess commercial real estate out there. Uh, that banks are going to have to deal with. So there are a tremendous amount of issues, but I think it's very timely because we can bring a new business line to these banks and help show them what needs to be done initially because it's still going to be a cash business. But once we get over that and once they're able to Visa and MasterCard and, and take uh, electronic payments, then it's going to be somewhat like other businesses. Yes, to Joanne's point, it'll be a little more expensive. Uh, initially, it'd be a lot more expensive because of the resources needed uh, for AML and BSA. But going forward, as they work through the cash and, and we, we have more access to electronic payments, uh, we'll get the cost down for these businesses for their, for their banking services. Excellent. So Michael, you would like financial institutions, well, so those that you'd like to have participate are financial institutions who are currently serving and not yet serving. So two different batches right. and then cannabis related businesses of all types and sizes to talk about what they have, what they'd like to see and what's the difference between the two. Right. And, and I think, you know, it might be interesting, not required, but it'd be interesting to look down that supply chain, see, see how far down the supply chain we want to go. Uh, for those that are impacted uh, due to SARS reporting uh, or AML or whatever, they're not primarily in the CRB business, but they may be providing services to CRBs. And what are their issues? 
Excellent. Ideally, how many participants in the survey would you like from the financial services side and the cannabis related business side? I would love to see uh, 50 to 75 on either side. Okay. So Tom, Tony, Joanne, if, if clients, members, uh, what have you, if, if you're open to also suggesting this out, that would be helpful because your, your folks would be informed if they're working with you. Absolutely. And Michael, I think your, your thesis is right on for, I'm talking to banks every single day and um, their earnings outlook has changed and what will drive earnings is changing rapidly. And so they're looking for new ways uh, to, to shore up both the balance sheet and the income statement. And I think there are some very good cases to be made why CRB banking might uh, help solve some of those problems. In fact, we're actually starting to see some financial institutions seriously engage in a conversation about lending as they look for new sources of earning assets. And hopefully that's, hopefully that's borne out in your survey also. Well, that's the working hypothesis. We'll see. <laughs> My working hypothesis is an overdraft that's turned upside down, but it, it did lead to a very interesting uh, results in terms of where are banks going to go. And that's why I say looking at these new business line uh, is going to be critically important, both from an income uh, perspective as well as building assets for the banks. I agree. I think it's, um, you know, maybe not now to your point, Michael, uh, but six months, if we get into 2021, depending on where the unemployment rate is, uh, what the commercial real estate market's going to look like, there's going to be a liquidity issue, big liquidity yes. issue. So this, this could be something to, that could really help um, that crisis. Uh, yeah. Yeah, these the excess balances that are there now will go away. I mean, a lot of bankers I've talked to have said, yeah, the average consumer small business balances is way up, but also their discretionary spending is down. Uh, loan past dues, loan delinquencies are up. Uh, you're probably seeing uh, what would be required payments from individuals, uh, utilities and rent. Uh, being deferred. So people are hoarding cash right now, uh, but that will ultimately have to go away and that'll work itself out in the next quarter, I would think. Unless, and again, depending what the new stimulus, if there's going to be another stimulus package, they'll just elongate that. But from the, certainly by year end, banks are going to have to have a strategy going forward because you're right, liquidity crisis will be there. You're going to have extended unemployment. You're going to have business failures that are probably unprecedented, uh, at least in our lifetime. So I'll close out um, and say with Brenton Woods, he, um, Michael and his team have defined the work to be done. It's a lot of work. Um, we, we said at the top of the hour that Emerging Markets Coalition is a startup, not for profit. So uh, we've committed to contributing towards the research, but we do need to, to raise funds to complete the research uh, directly to, to Brenton Woods. So anybody interested in that, here's a a call out for that as well. And the faster we can fund it, the faster we can get this done. And, and Tom, I'm really looking forward to taking this to the help with you <laughs> and yeah, anybody I, else that will join us. Yeah, I'll certainly encourage our CRB members uh, to complete it. And Michael, as you've referenced and, and Kirsten, as you know, I mean, it's a critical component to have uh, when you're on the Hill is to get that LA or that legislative aid or assistant, that type of information 
without that information, they're not going to be able to make the pitch for us at all. So it's, it's a fundamental component. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it turns out. I've got a write up. It's, it's, it, that has the, the charts that I, uh, showed to you earlier, but I, uh, Kirsten or somebody can send me your email addresses. I'll, I will shoot that to you directly. So you can take a look and also comment at edit, uh, delete, uh, just to make sure that we, we've got all the salient points that we need to have. Excellent. Hey. All right, thank you everyone. Thank you, Michael. And this is really exciting times. While we consider if there's another lockdown coming, we can be very productive in getting this research done. <laughs> you guys you in Texas keep on going out without masks, there will be another uh. lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Not my family. <laughs> thank you guys. <laughs> Great Thank job. Bye-bye.